From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado's democracy. I'm Sam Brash. And we're going to kick it off with a story about the power of Colorado voters. Because it's easy to think of politicians as the ones who make the laws. You know, some of them are literally called lawmakers. But in Colorado and in 20 other states, voters can propose and pass laws themselves. That's called the initiative process. It's especially powerful here, which can lead to some crazy scenes. Like this one. So I'm going to give you this. This is a recorder. Um... It starts at a food truck festival at Denver's Civic Center Park back in July. You're going to try and collect as many signatures. It's where I meet Kimmy Fry. What, what, what do you think? What's a good goal? I think a really good goal, I think, would be 10. She's a bubbly 19-year-old with a pixie haircut. And at the time, Kimmy worked as a paid petition circulator for Colorado Rising. It's a coalition that wants to push new fracking sites farther from buildings and waterways. And it's faced fierce opposition from the oil and gas industry, which sees it as a direct threat. For months before I meet Kimmy, Colorado Rising had complained about protesters, people who follow them whenever they head out with a clipboard. It's really intimidating, especially like later in the evening or like when I'm just like by myself. Luckily, I'm I want to see this in person. And Kimmy's boss, Brian Loma, has a plan. So we have a text message number that we're supposed to send if we see canvassers. Loma says the number came from an anonymous source inside the oil and gas industry. He thinks this is how his opponents monitor his canvassers and pair them with protesters. So he decides to test it out and report Kimmy to the number himself. So now we're going to say food trucks. We did it. Thank you for sending this in. Please reply with Canvas if you see more. All right, so Kim is headed down the I find a spot to watch Kimmy, and after about 20 minutes. Hold on, she's just been approached by three young men. And yeah, they have signs. They have signs. What does it say? What? One of the signs is a banner that says, This petitioner wants to ban fracking in Colorado. So does Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin. Wow. These guys follow Kimmy with the banner, and whenever she approaches someone, they yell, don't sign, don't sign. And here's what's really strange. The protesters are all young men in their teens and early 20s, and all of them say this is just how they want to spend their summer, in the heat, arguing about fracking. Have you ever been paid or asked to do this in any way? No, sir. It's our First Amendment right. We're not out here causing any problems. We're just saying our mind. You know, if they really want and to at one point, a bystander decides this whole scene is very uncool. I think instead of stalking, if you're impeding this woman's right to make a living, she gets paid on each signature. So every time you prevent someone from signing or taking money out of her pocket, how's that make you feel? You, you guys are too young. You don't even know what the so this week on Purplish, the initiative process. It was meant to be a way for people to have a say in state government, but it often turns into a shouting match with boatloads of cash on each side. You're breaking the f- law. Thank you. Yes, you are. It's called first. Yes, you. F- Has it always been this bonkers? For an answer, we're going to go way back to the moment Colorado voters won the right to make some of the rules. 
Ahead of November, groups and individuals are lining up to spend millions to convince voters on a range of Colorado ballot issues. Two years ago, the total spent over initiatives, $89 million. That's tripled the amount spent in support of or against statewide candidates that year, including money from super PACs. That's kind of incredible, right? It means the initiative process is often the highest stakes political poker game in the state. So how'd Colorado get here? Hey, is this Daniel? Yes, it is. For an answer, I got in touch with this guy. I'm Daniel Smith. I am the chair and a professor of political science at the University of Florida. From 1994 to 2003, I was on the faculty at the University of Denver. When Smith first got here in the mid-90s, he was fascinated by the initiative process. He'd only seen voters lobbied on candidates before coming to Colorado. He'd never seen TV and radio ads trying to convince them on issues. So Smith started to dig into the process, which, in political nerd terms, is part of a package known as direct democracy. Three powers held by the public. Yep. Uh, It's the citizen initiative. Citizens can propose a law. It is the popular referendum. Citizens can veto a law. And it is the recall. Citizens can fire an elected official. In all three cases, it's the citizens who initiate the process by collecting signatures, qualify a measure for the ballot, and put the measure on the ballot for citizens to adopt or reject. Colorado is one of only eight states that give citizens all those powers, and most of them are in the West. So how come? That's a really difficult question to get at. The answer is really about the West at the turn of the last century. That's when monopolies and robber barons dominated the biggest industries and the politicians. These were well-entrenched interests who did not want citizens being able to make decisions on what the utility rates should be for the budding power industry or for the trolley system that was across Denver. Around 1900, progressives decide to challenge those interests. They're led by Judge Benjamin Lindsay. He's a leading reformer, and he ends up kind of being the man behind the curtain. The Alexander Hamilton pushing for direct democracy for Colorado voters. I've I've looked up some pictures of him, kind of like a a bald guy with a big mustache, fancy suits. Like, he he looks like somebody who's pretty proper. Very proper. And uh, again, not someone who's going to be wielding a pitchfork in the fields uh, concerned about crop prices and the monopoly railroads uh, getting them to market. Lindsay didn't think the angry masses needed more pitchforks. They needed new tools within the democratic system. They themselves will be government as opposed to bystanders watching the party bosses manipulate the legislative process. But to do that, Lindsay has to use the legislative process and convince lawmakers to loosen their grip on power and share it with voters. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating tale in terms of this 10-year plan that, that Judge Lindsay had to try to make Colorado a complete democracy. So he and his allies start electing progressive politicians. And in 1908, they score the biggest office in the state. John Chaffroth, a progressive Democrat, wins the election for governor. On this platform to become a more responsive leader to the citizenry as opposed to the special interests that Judge Lindsay and others were really dismayed with. That year, progressives try to push direct democracy through the legislature. It dies, but then Governor Shafroth doubles down. He calls every lawmaker back to Denver and forces them to debate the idea for 24 days. Former President Teddy Roosevelt even takes a break from a hunting trip to come to the Capitol and lend his support. 
I kind of want to imagine him riding down from Estes Park on his steed into into Denver and, you know, whipping these lawmakers into shape. This is a campaign speech from Roosevelt from around that time, after he broke with Republicans and ran for president on the Bull Moose ticket. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe that the majority of the plain people of the United States will, day in and day out, make fewer mistakes in governing themselves than any smaller class or body of men, no matter what their training, will make in trying to govern them. I believe again that... And with a final assist from TR, it passes. And the question of whether citizens should have these three powers, to recall politicians, to reject laws, and to put new laws on the ballot, that question goes appropriately before voters. And they passed it that November in 1910? Overwhelmingly. I want to say it was a 74, 75% approval rate to do this. So Coloradans give themselves the authority to make laws. It's supposed to shift the balance to the people and away from special interests. But almost immediately... Things don't go exactly as planned. Well, certainly Judge Lindsay had pet proposals along the lines that progressives at the time were interested in, in terms of a women's eight-hour workday and uh, minimum wages and working conditions and the like. But then there were other measures that were somewhat surprising. A measure in 1912 to have an official state fair down in Pueblo that would infuse state dollars into the fair, as opposed to having private associations control it. Another one with respect to advertising of political candidates and sample ballots in newspapers, which it turns out it was the newspaper industry that was behind this because they saw it as a guaranteed form of revenue. So those were, you know, special interests using the initiative process because those special interests didn't particularly have success in the state legislature. And it wasn't just some special interests. Judge Lindsay's direct opponents get in on the game, too. Folks like John Rockefeller and and Jay Gould, who were major industrialists, who were not terribly pleased with the progressive legislature uh, in 1910-11, passing laws to put more protections on workers, specifically their own miners. And so they decided to put issues on the ballot, paying people to collect signatures, just like we see today, in order to try to overturn progressive legislation. In the end, there were 32 measures on the ballot. Right, and 32, I think, is still a record today, right? We've never seen another ballot this long in Colorado. And I'm sure many of your listeners hope never to see that ballot. (laughs) It was kind of the Wild West, and there was money to be made by those who were circulating the measures and and, and pushing the initiative process way back in, in 1912. There definitely is this idea out there that there was some moment with the initiative process where it sort of lost its innocence. And it's only been more recently that all kinds of money has poured in to advance special interests. You're saying that that's not really the case, right? Yeah, correct. There's not a lot that we haven't seen when we actually turn back the clock and look critically at this process. The amount of money being spent on campaigns, the amount of special interest involved, the duplicity in the signature gathering process, these are all not new. They've been around for over a century in Colorado. Uh, We just have to look a little more critically and and take off our rose-colored glasses that there was somehow 
a, you know, a, a halcyon days in which the process was golden and, and uh, we need to harken back to that. That's, that's not the process. It's an instrument, an institution that can be used uh, for good or evil. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll look at how initiatives have turned Colorado into a laboratory of democracy, and whether we, the people, are the scientists in this laboratory or the test subjects. You're listening to a podcast about Colorado and politics and history. And if you love all those things, do I have a show for you. I'm Ryan Warner, host of Colorado Matters, the daily news interview program from CPR News, where, for example, we dive into the political divide with a series called Breaking Bread. I don't think there's anything that Trump could do that would move you to support Trump. Perhaps I'm wrong. No, that's probably right. (laughs) Yeah, and I I agree. And there was our in-depth look at the villainization of Californians. It's not so much the numbers of people coming into Colorado. It's the culture that they're bringing with them. We call that the Californian culture. And for good measure, a Colorado jazz legend paying tribute to the Queen of Soul. Every day on Colorado Matters, you can expect to learn about your state. You can also expect the unexpected. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. And remember that CPR's supporting members make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. You're back with Purplish, a show about Colorado's democracy. And we left off in 1912. That was the first year voters had the right to pass laws in Colorado, and special interests quickly got in on the action. Remember, it was a huge fight to get direct democracy. The funny thing is, though, that over the next 60 years or so, it kind of went in and out of favor. And then came 1970. Today, Denver is the United States' choice for hosting the 12th Winter Olympics. It is a most natural selection. Denver wins the chance to host the 1976 Winter Olympics, and organizers promise it'd be a bargain compared to previous Olympic Games. Already, nearly 80% of the facilities necessary to hold the 76 Games are constructed and ready. But it quickly became clear that its backers had undersold the cost, which worried Dick Lamb, a state representative and future governor. Really, Dick Lamb came out of nowhere as a state lawmaker. Again, Professor Daniel Smith. And I don't think he was really an anti-growth individual, but he saw this as damaging his state. So Lamb qualifies an initiative for the ballot. That would change the state constitution to prohibit the state from levying any taxes or or raising any revenue to bring the 76 Winter Olympics to Colorado. And that passes in 1972. Colorado voters enshrine an amendment in the Constitution saying they'll contribute nothing to the upcoming Olympic Games. It sends a pretty bad signal to the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, that maybe this is not the place where we want to be hosting the Winter Olympics. Pretty quickly, organizers withdraw their invitation, making Denver the only city to ever reject the Olympics. That measure really showed the power to a a generation or two of individuals who didn't see the initiative process being used like it was in the progressive era some 60 years earlier, that 
the citizen's voice could be heard and could be heard loudly and could change not only state but also national policy. After that, Coloradans really get into ballot initiatives. In the following years, they all but ban underground nuclear tests, block state funds for abortion, enact strict term limits. And then in 1992, Colorado approved something that gets national attention. Amendment 2. The people who work to protect civil rights for gays stormed the Democrats' victory party last night. Their pain and anger made a Clinton... This measure put on the ballot by conservative forces would have overridden the local ordinances by places like Boulder that protected gay and lesbians and their sexual orientation. The amendment was so harsh that critics nicknamed Colorado the hate state. There were boycotts and, of course, a lawsuit. I do not believe you can discriminate against somebody on the basis of their sexual orientation under the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. That's Roy Romer, Colorado's Democratic governor at the time. He opposed Amendment 2, but since he was leading the state, became the defendant in the lawsuit. Uh, This measure ended up going all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it struck down. But in many ways, that measure took the eyes off the ball of a measure that had been on the ballot two previous cycles that was put on by perennial gadfly Doug Bruce. I am a crazy man. (laughs) Bruce was a dogged anti-tax crusader. CPR has a whole other podcast just about him called The Tax Man. I'm crazy enough to believe all those things we were told in school about the consent of the governed, we the people. Quick shameless plug, The Tax Man is great. Go listen to it after you're done with this. Anyway, 1992 was when voters finally got on board with Bruce's Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. It requires voter approval for new taxes in Colorado, and it also caps public spending. Whatever you make of that, it shows the raw power of direct democracy. Bruce radically changed how Colorado governs itself. He shifted the balance of power even further away from the legislature and to the voters. It's not cynical. He is very authentic. He believes in what he believes substantively, and he uses those populist tropes and and the narrative of giving citizens the right to, to vote on taxes in a very sincere way. Tabor was fueled by grassroots energy, but think back to the start of the initiative process. Wealthy people and corporations quickly realized they could use the same tool to advance their goals. And that's never ended either. People like Ron Unz, an uber-wealthy businessman from California, made his money out in Silicon Valley and and wanted to uh, have English-only public education and thought, well, it's a lot cheaper to put this on the ballot in Colorado than it is in, in California. Let's put this measure on the ballot. That initiative failed in 2002, and many other wealthy people have spent big on ballot issues in Colorado. Billionaire Philip Anschutz, even the current Democratic gubernatorial nominee Jared Polis. And there's a simple reason rich people like initiatives. You can only spend so much directly on candidates, but with initiatives, you can spend as much as you want. The Supreme Court has made it very clear that the initiative process has many fewer regulations than electing candidates. And the reason is these are issues, and issues can't be corrupted. Putting a measure on the ballot speaks for itself, and it's not about getting something in return. The court has also protected the key tool that turns money into ballot access, paid signature gathering. 
1988, the high court struck down a Colorado law banning the practice, ruling it limited political speech protected by the First Amendment. Bottom line? Colorado, because it is so relatively inexpensive to qualify measures for the ballot, it's a way to, to test the water. In a lot of ways, that's the reason Colorado is a laboratory of democracy. It's a place where industries, wealthy people, or passionate groups can afford to test out their ideas for how society should work. But it's clear Colorado voters are wondering if the laboratory needs some safety updates. Just two years ago, they approved an initiative called Raise the Bar. It makes it harder to pass constitutional amendments at the ballot. In other words, 106 years after they became their own lawmakers, Colorado voters checked that power and made it tougher to use elections to conduct more or less permanent experiments with state government. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, it is this laboratory. Um, is it good for Colorado? Well, I have faith in Colorado voters to be able to sniff these out. And I, I think Coloradans can do that pretty well. And, and there are very few instances in which uh, voters are duped by uh, the advertising or, or the message. So think about it as, as a way to send a signal nationally on whether or not this is something that other states should consider or take a, a more skeptical view of. And one thing I'm really curious about is, given all the research you've done about direct democracy uh, in Colorado and elsewhere, how have you ended up feeling about the whole process? Yeah, I'm, I'm strongly ambivalent about direct democracy. I think there are some excellent aspects of allowing citizens to have a voice as people like Judge Lindsay were advocating uh, more than 100 years ago. I really do think it helps to educate the public about issues when you have to make those decisions outside of the uh, King Supers of, of whether or not you're going to sign a petition on a particular issue. On the flip side, the idea that we can take issues and have just binary choices, that you're either for or against it, as opposed to a more nuanced understanding, is something that the initiative process is not very good at doing. But on top of that, sometimes, you know, as a citizen, you like what the legislature is doing. You like the governor. I think a lot of the way people think about the initiative process in places like Colorado and beyond is whether you're currently a winner or a loser in the current political battles that are going on. Hey, hey, um, one last thing. I can't run you through 100-plus years of history and not catch you up on this election. Because as of this coming Monday, the ballot will be officially set in Colorado, pending any legal challenges. Remember that controversial fracking setback initiative from the top of the episode? It made it. There is a tax increase for schools. There are competing measures over highway funding. You can read about all of them at CPR.org. As for the money, it's clear corporations are spending big on ballot initiatives this year, especially oil and gas companies. But big-pocketed donors pushing a single ballot issue? Not so much. The really big money flowing from a single person is in the race for governor. You might have heard of this guy. I'm Jared Polis, and I'm running for governor because Colorado faces real challenges. Next week on Purplish, Jared Polis and his money. 
a story from CPR business reporter Ben Marcus. The money affects all kinds of things. It may not be the only thing you need to win, but it does change the way a race is run, and we've never really seen anything like this. Mike, I, I, look, if you didn't have all these out-of-state donors, I wouldn't have needed to put in my own money to keep up with you. So, you know, it's money begets money. You know, it's, it's you, you got to compete to get your message out. That's it for this week's episode. This podcast is made possible by CPR members. Learn about supporting CPR or join today at CPR.org. Everyone who's already a member, thank you. You're the reason we can do this. This episode of Purplish has been edited, guided, and prodded along by Megan Verlee. Script notes from Nathaniel Minor, more editing and audio production by Brad Turner and John Pino. Our theme music was composed by Brad Turner. Additional music this episode from Matt Wiesner and Poddington Bear. The sounds you heard came from KUSA, Denver 7, the Library of Congress, and the Denver Public Library's Western History and Genealogy Department. And a weekly podcast is an experiment for us. So please, let us know what you think. Give us a rating in iTunes, write us, tweet at us, share ideas for future episodes. And if you like it, tell your friends to subscribe. See you next week.